Our text uh, for this evening is 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 11. First Peter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the, of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already spent past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So ends the reading of God's word. Until Christ returns, uh, there will no doubt be war in this world. And, and certainly in recent times, in conflicts in Ukraine, and Israel weigh heavily on our minds. And whenever there is war, there are soldiers who are there to fight them. Now, if a soldier wishes to succeed in battle, or for that matter, simply survive, he must be properly armed. In addition, um, once they are properly armed, they must make use of the weapons that they have received properly so that they might be successful. A faithful soldier will, will seek both to, to be properly armed and to use that which he has to pursue victory in battle. A Christian soldier, uh, not one fighting with guns or what have you, um, a Christian is a soldier and therefore must be properly armed. And this passage tells us that we ought to be armed as well. This was true of persecuted Christians in Peter's day, and it's true just as much for you today as well. So this evening, we specifically we will be looking at arming with the attitude of the Almighty, arming ourselves with the attitude of Christ or the purpose of Christ. 
And so then using this armament, we have victory in the Christian life. So there are three points uh, this evening that I can, you can organize the, the sermon around, if you didn't remember that. First of all, arming ourselves with the attitude of Christ, like our sermon title. Ridding ourselves of the world's passion in verses 3 through 6. And conducting ourselves that God might be glorified in verses 7 through 11. So arming ourselves with the attitude of Christ, especially in verses 1 and 2. Uh, ridding ourselves of the world's passions in verses 3 through 6. And conducting ourselves that God might be glorified in verses 7 through 11. So now, as we start looking through this text this evening, there, we're immediately confronted with a number of different, difficult interpretive issues. Uh, well, it's easy to understand Peter's statement that Christ suffered in his body. We all understand that this refers to uh, Jesus' life in this world and ultimately culminating in his death and, uh, and, and suffering. What does exactly does it mean that we are supposed to have Christ's purpose, as we have in the NASB here before us, or way of uh, our attitude in the NIV, from which I get my sermon title there. It starts with A, so arming attitude. Anyway, or way of thinking the ESV, or insights, as commentator David uh, has translated it. So what is this purpose or attitude or way of thinking or insight uh, that is mentioned here in this text? Uh, the, the verses directly in front of us this evening don't immediately answer that question. But verse 1 begins with the word, therefore, which refers us back to what was written before. In this case, it refers back to 18 of chapter, uh, verse 18 of chapter 3, which reads, For Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive through the Spirit. And so our text this evening is clearly expanding on what it means that Christ suffered in the body. But it's still not so clear how that relates to Christ's purpose or his attitude or way of thinking. But if you think really carefully, the key seems to be that despite the fact that Christ's death uh, faced death unjustly at the hands of wicked men, despite the fact that he was not under obligation to suffer, he did not cave in to the temptation to back away from the suffering and do evil to escape it. Rather, Christ, in order to bring us to God, suffers knowing that there is ultimate victory in the Spirit waiting for him on the other side of the cross. And so you must be armed with that same kind of purpose, that same kind of attitude, that, that same kind of thinking. You must be so eager to do that which is right, to obey our Lord and Savior, and reap an eternal blessing through the victory in the Spirit, even to the point that you're willing to die for the cause of Christ. The language here of being armed is similar to Paul's exhortation uh, to put on the full armor of God that you, you see in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. In Ephesians, truth, righteousness, faith, salvation, and the spirit are, are mentioned as things uh, uh, which we need to put on. But here we're to be armed 
with the attitude of Christ. And, and this verse puts the, that on par with these other things that you find in Ephesians. Why does it do that? Well, because all of these things will enable one so armed to overcome the temptations of the world and live for righteousness. Now, it's no doubt the case that each day you may be bogged down with the, the weight of the concerns of this world. Uh, we, we often are the Easily, we often easily fall into that trap. It's, 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 it's a common thing for all of us that we are consumed by the cares of this world. We get trapped into thinking about how do we complete all of our daily tasks and what's going to happen in the, in the future and be planning maybe about our kids' future or grandkids' future or what have you and thinking about retirement, all these things. We, sometimes we, we, we get consumed in all of these cares. And it's not to say that we shouldn't be thinking about these things. But sometimes we, we get weighed down by them and overly focused upon them and forget about the purpose for which we are on this planet in the first place. So when you get consumed in all these things and, and when your expectations are not immediately filled regarding them, if you're inconvenienced in, in pursuing these goals, it's easily become frustrated or even angry about the lot which you find yourselves in this world. But if you have Christ's attitude, is there really any place for that kind of response to these things in which we encounter in this world? If you see that God is sovereign over your whole life and in control over whatever you encounter in it, and if you find yourselves inconvenienced or, dare I say, even encounter persecution or or pain or suffering as a result of doing the right thing, of obeying God, walking in his paths. What point is there in anger or complaining or frustration? Will frustration or anger or complaining and worldly pleasure help you be more equipped for the battle for Christ's kingdom? Obviously not. If we are armed with Christ's attitude, these things become a hindrance to us, an encumbrance, something that we see as something that's not helping us in our pursuit of God's kingdom. And so that gives us, seems to give us a proper sense of, of the following difficult phrase, which is also one of the interpretive issues here. It says, he who has suffered in the flesh or the body has ceased from sin. Different translations have body or flesh. Now, if you read verse 1 in the New American Standard Bible, it might conclude that the he of this verse is, is Jesus. At least that's the most, maybe closest antecedent. You remember that fancy uh, term there. It's like, well, what does this pronoun refer to? Okay, you might easily think it, it, it's he, it refers to Jesus. But if you read on in verse 2, it talks about not living in the rest of his earthly life for human desires, indicating a change in his life away from sin. Now, obviously, if that's the case, and we're not talking about Jesus here with this verse, verb he. Jesus didn't turn away from sin. He, uh, from sin, I mean, he, he's never lived in sin. So it, there, there is a focus upon the individual believer. He or whoever, uh, as the ESV uh, has it translated, therefore refers generally to all believers. But are all believers who suffer suddenly done with sin? Can any believer even, any believer really, completely stop sinning? and be completely done with it? 
And maybe more to the point, don't some believers even fall or backslide when they encounter uh, conflict for the, for the, for the um, name of Christ? So what does this mean? We're, we're the, the, he, who is, uh, he, he was done with sin. What, Christians are done with sin. What does that, that mean? So you have to continue thinking about the example of Christ. He chose willingly to endure crucifixion for the sake of doing right, and through his atoning work did away with the bondage of sin for all who place their trust in him. Uh, believers, on the, uh, on the other hand, you who willing endure suffering for the sake of doing right, show yourself to be his genuine disciples and show yourself to be those who have been freed from sin, who crucified their old natures and turn away from wickedness. That is, you, you are, are done with sin in that way. Uh, not to say that you completely are free of sin, but you're done with that way of life and you're now focused upon Jesus. Um, yes, we continually to struggle with sin in our lives, but that is no longer our focus. Our attitude is that of Christ. We're, we're done with that. We're, we're through with that old way of life, uh, about which the coming verses will specifically uh, uh, speak to. So to paraphrase loosely, uh, verses 1 and 2 then, it says, So just as Christ suffered in his body for doing right, arm yourselves with the same attitude towards suffering, for doing right, which Jesus had. For those who suffer in their bodies for doing right show themselves to be through with sin so as to live the rest of their earthly lives not for doing the will of man, but for doing the will of God. So arm ourselves with this attitude. That's, that starts off this passage. We need to have that attitude by the grace of God that we can live faithfully for our Savior as a soldier of Christ. Uh, turning now to verses 3 through 6, we need to be thinking about ridding ourselves of the world's passions. Now, certainly a good soldier uh, will certainly never hand victory to over to his enemies or shoot himself in the foot to avoid having to fight, or even worse, become a traitor and do battle against those in his own uh, uh, army. Uh, turn to the enemy side and begin to fight against his own side. Uh, certainly that will only help his enemy to succeed. No one of you would approve of such things. And yet Christ, Christian soldiers are often tempted to do that and act as traitors to the cause of Christ. Verse 3 indicates that there must have been a particular temptation for Christians in Peter's day to fall back into the former ways of life that they had before they were believers and, and desert to the enemy's side. Most likely, considering the context of the book of 1 Peter, this was due to persecution. Um, there was enormous pressure being put upon individual believers to return to the former way of life, to just to go, go with the flow, go back and join society and, and live like the pagans uh, do from, from, the, from the lifestyle from which they had come. And there are six specific ways that are mentioned here. Uh, the New American Standard Bible is a little bit better than the NIV in translating these. and has them translated as pursuing a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. 
The first two items in this list clearly have to do with sexual sins, whereas the third and fifth relate to excessive use of alcohol, and the fourth probably to both of these sins. Uh, the last item listed, abominable idolatries, probably provided the context uh, for these other sins because these sins were often practiced in the context of worshiping idols. Um, Peter says with a real sense of sarcasm that you have spent enough time in doing these passing as if we needed to have any amount of time dedicated to these things. You, you, you know... You, you lived like that before. You've done that enough. You know what that's like. Spend enough time with that. Don't need to go back and spend any more time in those wicked practices. Really, you spent too much time already uh, because even one moment involved in these sins is too much. As verse 4 suggests to us, these activities were the normal part of the lives of pagans at that time. And that this lifestyle surrounded these believers at that time. And so failure to participate in these kinds of activities would mark one out as being rather odd, strange, and expose them to ridicule. Their, their lives as believers who, who did not follow this course of, of worldliness mark them out as strangers or pilgrims in this world. We, we see that theme being repeated throughout uh, Peter and many other uh, parts of the Bible, uh, speaking to the fact that in this world, we as believers, we're really strangers. The rest of the world around us lives in a way very different uh, from us. And so we're just sort of passing through uh, this world. And so it may seem that we are um, uh, foreigners in our own communities. Can you relate to these people? I hope you can, at least in some way, although you may not be in danger in your life or, or, or your well-being by choosing not to participate in the wickedness of our own day. It should not be such an uncommon thing that people revile you for your stance for biblical morals. And if not, then there are a couple questions you ought to ask yourselves. The first are, is, are you really living in accordance with the principles of the Bible? Or if at least on one level you are, are you doing so, doing your best when you are amongst unbelievers to be like everyone else without technically lying or, or, or uh, you know, just sort of hiding your Christianity so that you won't uh, uh, incur the ire of unbelievers? In some ways, wanting to be accepted by the world around us on their terms is almost as bad or if not worse cases than actually falling into a lot of the sins in which the unbelievers find themselves. Well, certainly you are not to wear a badge on your, little badge on your, 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 your clothing or sleeve that announces to the world that you are holier than they are, or at least holier than, you think that you're holier than they are. At the same time, you're, the way of life, the way that you live your life in front of the unbelieving world ought to make your stance clear enough. And so the second question you ought to ask is, if you are living a holy life, are you running from the world and hiding behind the walls of the church to avoid any confrontation? Uh, the scriptures call you to be in the world, but not of it. And John 17, 14 through 16. So the question is, are, are you trying to live outside this world? Are you trying to 
sort of completely separate yourselves from interaction from uh, unbelievers so that you don't have to endure conflict and difficulty. Um, that's sort of what Jesus is, was condemning when he's in, or when he was telling his disciples that they were going to live in the world and not of it. We don't want to live in a, in a monastery, sort of separated away from, completely separated away from the, from the world around us. We need to be living in it so that we begin living out our lives before unbelievers and share the gospel and be a witness of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. Certainly, it's of utmost importance to have fellowship within the church and to have the majority of our relationships within that context. However, do you ever make this an excuse for not having relationships outside the church where you will likely rub people the wrong way at times, but also have an opportunity to share with them the message of the gospel? A soldier must be equipped with courage. He must be armed with the kind of courage that Jesus had. Revelation 21.8 tells us that the cowardly will pass away into eternal destruction with murderers and the sexually immoral and so forth. So you must ask yourself, do you live your life listening to the counsel of fear? Or uh, do you live your life for the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God? Text, our text this evening goes on in verse 5 to give you an encouragement that whoever, whatever evil actions the world may inflict upon you, that is not your primary concern because the Lord will ultimately bring these actions into judgment. The, the, the world, those in it, are accountable ultimately to, to God, not to you, not to the civil government. And so if the, 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 these former two um, cannot, or these latter two cannot uh, deal with the issues or deal with, with the sins of unbelievers, they're not, we're not able to straighten them out. We know that ultimately God will in his judgment. So then look at verse 6. In the last verse in the section, it says, For the gospel has for this person been preached even to those who are dead. Well, that's a little bit strange, isn't it? Do we preach to dead people? Well, obviously that's not what that's referring to. The, the gospel is not preached to people after they die, uh, but rather it's speaking to the dead here uh, who have heard the gospel before they died. And Peter's audience is most certainly thinking about those maybe who have died in the faith, maybe for this, the cause of, of Christ. They, they've suffered death for living out their faith. The gospel came to these people before they died, and the purpose for, uh, for, for that was that they might believe. They might be faithful to Christ. So it goes on to say that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Peter said this to encourage his readers who knew people who had died for the sake of the gospel or, or who were judged in the flesh as men. Rather than their, their deaths being a cause for doubting the gospel or for fear, it is a reason for believing the gospel and having courage. The gospel message will put its adherents at enmity with the world. Jesus told us that that would be the case. The gospel message will transform its hearers and it will incite rebellion against those who, uh, rebellion against uh, this gospel and will provoke 
anger and hatred by those who bring that message. The message of the gospel will bring about the judgment of the world against uh, bring about the judgment of the world against believers whose bodies may even be subject to death. But through the Spirit, it will impart eternal life to all who place their faith in Christ. Pay attention here to the verbs. Uh, Judged is in the past tense. That reminds us that the judgment of the world came to an end for those who died for their faith. But the live is in the present tense because it continues without ending. And so this is true for all who place their trust in Christ. At some point, we all die. Maybe we'll die for the sake of the gospel. But we are encouraged to believe that we have eternal life in Christ. So if you feel afraid for yourselves or for your loved ones because of the opposition that the world has to Christ and the opposition that may come about for um, their, their stance, maybe it's hard to think about that your children eventually suffering persecution for their faith. Ever felt that way? Or if, if you ever feel that you have failed to be strong and courageous as Joshua commands us to be, then be encouraged that that Christ was given for sinners like you. And though your bodies may decay, your spirits will live on with Christ forever if you place your trust in him. So finally, as we come to the the last verses, 7 through 11, we need to conduct ourselves that God may be glorified. So First, we arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ. Then we need to rid ourselves from these things that might encumber us from serving God. But finally, also, we must conduct ourselves that God might be glorified, live out our Christian faith. So with this confidence that we have in Christ that he'd given us through his work on the cross, the, the soldier cannot sit and be idle. The Christian soldier cannot be sit, and sit and be idle. If a soldier is properly equipped doesn't become a traitor and has courage, that's all good, but it still will do little good in winning if he just sits and does not actually fight. So as we live out our Christian life, it, it cannot simply be a, a defensive, living in a defensive war. A defensive war cannot be won. There must be an offense as well. However, the war of the Christian and the Christian life is, is, is your offensive attack as Christians is are not fought with bullets or bombs, knives or napalm, arrows or armor. They are fought with prayer, love, spiritual speech and service, hospitality and the other gifts of the spirit. Verse 7 says that the end of all things is near. This encourages you to believe that Christians, the Christian's battle, your battle, is rapidly coming to a close. Our lives on this earth are, in the, in the perspective of eternity at least, uh, rather short. So we must all get up and seek the, the kingdom by the means that God has provided now. Because our, our time is short in this world. There may be difficult times ahead, but remember that they are quickly coming to an end. Therefore, it says to be of sound judgment and of sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. If you're going to overcome persecution, if you're going to build God's kingdom in this world and live for Christ, 
If you're going to win battles for Christ's kingdom, it will not be done in your own strength. It can only be done in God's strength and in his power. And so it should come as no surprise that Peter, at the beginning of this section of the text, on the positive role of the Christian, the, uh, the Christian's offense, so to speak, he encourages Christians to pray, encourages you to, to pray. It's interesting, though, that being clear-minded and self-controlled seem to be given as prerequisites for effective prayer. Being clear-minded and having self-control are probably meant here to be antithetical to the above-mentioned sins of, of drunkenness and lust. In any case, if you have a severe lack of these qualities, then your mind is not going to be focused upon the needs of prayer. Your focus will not be on prayer, and, you won't, and as you try to pray, you have difficulty focusing on what needs to be prayed. Er, at a chapter earlier in First. Peter 3, 7, Peter mentions that husbands need to respect their wives so that nothing will hinder their prayers. I suppose that there are some similar things going on in this verse, and maybe this is what he's thinking here, could have, uh, is reminiscent of what he said in, the, in a chapter earlier. Although I think uh, Lely would agree with me that we, we quarrel a little. Uh, there have been a few times when they have been irritated enough with each other uh, that, uh, that we've you know, our relationship, not with major stress or anything like that, but we have our times of challenges. And to reflect on those times, um, it was particularly difficult for me to pray simply for the simple reason that it was hard to concentrate on much of anything else except for resolving the tension that existed in our relationship. So having self-control and a sober mind will no doubt allow the Christian soldier to be focused on the, the attention, uh, attention on arming themselves with the attitude of the Almighty, with the attitude of Christ, and, and reaching out to the only source for his strength and success. The remainder of our passage speaks particularly about the mutual advocation of believers. If the body of believers is, is not strong and healthy, they will be of no, no help, uh, in no ways ready to face the temptations of the world or to seek the building up of God's kingdom. However, we may also, it probably ought, to see these things as keys to the outreach as well. Since the outreach of the church is dependent upon the church being healthy enough to have something to share with the world. If uh, you, can't, you can't export uh, to some other place what you don't have here at home. If you don't have uh, deep faith in Christ here in the church, then it's difficult to go outside the church and to share a faith that you don't have. Verse 8 says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. The second half of this verse being a clear reference to Proverbs 10.12. As Christ has an attitude of love towards us, so we ought to love, you ought to love. Therefore, one of the greatest weapons that the Christian has in his arsenal with which to arm himself is Christ's attitude of love. As Christ in love forgave your sins through his death, so you also should be willing to love one another to the point of being willing to die as a result of other sins against you, and yet be willing to forgive. Well, you might not ordinarily be called in this way to, to love to, to that point, to forgive even to the point of death. Certainly, if you love in this way, you will be able to bear or cover over the ordinary, every, everyday sins 
committed against you without being angry, frustrated, or without holding grudges. So first, here it says, you, you must love your brothers and sisters in the church. Each other here specifically is used there to mention the, the, the relationship we have as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we need to have and maintain love uh, for, for each other. Uh, this will allow the church to have unity in order that she may grow in love and service to God. Secondly, by implication, you must have a love for the lost, even when they seek to do you harm. Your offensive witness of the gospel to them will be most powerfully conveyed if you do so in true love. This love will be made even more manifest if your love clearly persists even when unbelievers malign you. Rather than to see their abuse as a reason for frustration, anger, and retaliation, you ought to see it as a great opportunity to show forth God's love and the transformation that, has, that that love has made on your own life that you are able to endure their maligning you and yet demonstrate love and forgiveness. Verse 9 expands on this saying, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. You may or may not know this, but in the early church, um, hospitality uh, was particularly important for the spread of the gospel and the edification of the church uh, because there were many traveling preachers. There weren't a lot of pastors or evangelists in those days, and so they would often have to travel around, and they were dependent especially upon the hospitality of believers when they came to town. There was no you know, Hyatt Hotel uh, uh, that was a convenient place to stay in. There were inns, but they were not particularly safe places to stay, and such uh, Christian teachers and workers who traveled around would be dependent on the hospitalities of believers to help them on their way. Uh, believers here are encouraged to extend such a hospitality. Now, it's easy to imagine sometimes, you know, when someone like this would come to town, people kind of maybe grumbling, and, and when, when in most cases they, they had barely enough to feed themselves and house themselves. And so they're living from hand to mouth. So imagine it's easy to say, well, you know, I, w I wish Paul would move on. Um, so, I mean, Grace is here to preach, but it's also uh, maybe an extra burden on our income while he's here. Do we have to ex extend hospitality to him? Um, we may not be in that kind of economic situation, but so certainly if you have much food and relatively large houses should be all the more eager to demonstrate the love of Christ and extend hospitality to those in need within the church without grumbling. Uh, this is for the purpose of expanding and building up of God's kingdom. But also such hospitality ought to be extended to those outside the church in, in, a, in the appropriate time and place that they might be brought into the church. Lastly, in verses 10 and 11, uh, they, these verses give general instructions regarding the use of whatever gift one has received for, to serve others, to the end that God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So just a few comments here before we close. It seems at times that doing all things to the glory of God is, is sort of a, a worn-out phrase that we, especially, especially Reformed believers, might uh, use. And yet, sometimes I wonder how often we really keep our focus and our, and our minds on glorifying God as we live from day to day. But if we are truly armed 
with the attitude of the Almighty, or the attitude of Christ, can there really be any other focus? Doing the things that are outlined in this passage glorifies God. And, and verse 10 says that we are to be employing these, employing your special gifts in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Or in other words, putting to use all these gifts that God has given you, whether in prayer or offering hospitality or speaking the word of God, as mentioned in these verses, offering up service, whatever gifts that God has given you to, to, uh, in these, regard to these things that you can put into use for God's service, they're to be used to the fullest extent possible by the strength which God supplies. That all who see you might in one way or another give praise to God, give glory to God. But as I mentioned again, by the strength which God provides. This phrase reminds you again that you can accomplish none of these things to God's glory without God's strengthening. Earlier I talked about how we need to pray. Only, only in the strength that God provides can we do any of the things that listed in these, uh, this passage. We are sinners. We often are not courageous. Often we fall back in one way or another to the ways of the world so we need God's continual forgiveness and transforming power in the Holy Spirit that we might have this right attitude only then can we glorify God whether it is to believers in the church or pagans outside the church God's gifts must be fully utilized as God gives you strength so go from here this this evening in that power power that God gives the church, God gives you, that, that the kingdom of God might be pursued, the church might be built up, and that Christ might be glorified. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you meditating upon this passage and all these instructions that were given to Christians who were living in a world that was much more hostile to the gospel and those who were believers than in our own day. And yet, we see your, your strength was sufficient for them. That, that while they also, like us, were tempted, and yet, through the strength you provided, they lived for you and glorified your name. Oh, Father, give us that strength this evening. Give us the attitude of Christ, who faced the cross, and yet would not compromise um, and or turn away into sin. Oh, Father, help us to see that your way is wonderful and good, and that pursuing the, the way of the world is destructive to us, does not help us, does not help to serve the purpose for which you have called us here on this planet. Father, help us to know that the times are short and to live our lives in that light, knowing that while our, uh, that knowing that our time in this life is short, and therefore we ought to use every moment for, for the purpose of building up your people, your kingdom, um, in, the, in the gifts that you have given us. Oh, Father, we, we pray that you would help us and forgive us when we fail to do these things, for we know we are weak. Father, bless us. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.